Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder from Europe, so uh, it's going to feel like being at home again, which is great. Uh, but I think that this founder really, you know, has uh, gone through the ups, through the downs, through the highs. You know, now he's uh, killing it with his uh, recent success, uh, successful company. And I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit. So without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Rafael Guillermo. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alessandro, for having me. So originally born in the French Alps, you know, I'm sure that you did a lot of skis. So that was probably a very fun upbringing. Exactly. I, I was uh, in high school. I was going in the morning to school and the afternoon to ski. So it was kind of a very good early days. That's amazing. And what was it like? I mean, did you have like anyone in the family that was into engineering, into maybe uh, computers or maybe like into entrepreneurship or tell us, you know, how that seed was planted early on? It's actually funny because all my uh, parents and brother are state worker, so kind of very risk averse job. I'm, I'm the only uh, kind of entrepreneur, but my two grandparents were were entrepreneur uh, in in their way. So uh, one was a farmer, and I will always get very close to him, and he was super entrepreneur. No, really, you know, his way of doing farming and like buying the first tractor or thing like this. And I think this is a being very close to that grandfather that I got the, the passion and the ambition to build something uh, on my own. And what about in terms of really resolving problems? Because you ended up uh, studying industrial engineering. So obviously you were into taking a look at problems and figuring out how the hell to solve them. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm an engineer uh, first and I, and I always had that very uh, engineer mindset. I learned to code uh, quite early in my engineering study. I was actually quite good at coding, uh, but I, I didn't really like it. I think it was too much of rigor and, and I was, the creativity part was, uh, was 10% and, and debugging was 90% probably because I was a very bad uh, developer. Uh, but that was my first touch with technology world. And I'd actually for after five or six years, I, I was not really into startup, not really into technology. Uh, and I came back to a startup and technology. Uh, after my two first internship and working with like much more settled and mature company. And let's talk about that because you did a few internships in places like Cartier or, you know, you even worked at places like Accenture. And I think that this was definitely the segue to really help you understand that 
what you really wanted to do was to build your own business. So how was that transition like? And what was that moment where you encountered, you know, this industry is exciting. I want to go into it and I want to build something. Yeah, so I've I, I always been a bit uh, attracted by entrepreneurship, but I didn't grow up saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do with my life for sure. This is it. And so I was just trying, like a lot of people, trying to figure out what to do with my life and what was my interest. And my first uh, internship was with uh, Accenture in a mission for AXA, rolling out SAP, so huge ERP software in a huge company, something that took like them four years with uh, 200 consultants and so on. And I, and I actually hated it. Uh, not much uh, consulting lifestyle was okay for me, but really just uh, the topics. It was incredibly boring. I was super, super complex topic, but you see only like 0.1% of what you're working on. And insurance, insurance, my gosh, it was like super immaterial, super far from anything you could understand, super far from the consumer. And so after that first uh, work experience, I promised myself that I will never work again in insurance. I never work again in a, in big uh, IT or like big IT projects. I, I kind of really find uh, the working world super boring, and I think this is definitely what led me to uh, to find something much more exciting, much more uh, driven by passion and by uh, meaning. I mean, Carte was an interesting experience. I learned to work with very passionate people about gemstones and like and true experts of of, of their of their own world. But at the end, the, the obvious. Um, the best thing was to start my own company. And I actually had the choice to to join L'Oreal, which is kind of the probably the best company that every French guy dreams to join when he grew up. Uh, if it's not joining consulting, more or less it's like joining L'Oreal. Uh, and it's one of the most performing uh, listed companies in France. Uh, and I had a job there and I decided to, to go for an entrepreneurship track. I mean, it's nothing very courageous, but that's definitely... Uh, the tipping point that led me to to start uh, working on on uh, building my own thing. So good food was definitely your your own thing. So that that didn't last so long. I mean, that was say eight months, but it was definitely eight months full of lessons uh, learned that we're going to be just talking in a little bit. But but what happened during those eight months, and and why was it such a short stint? So, I mean, uh, good food was my first intent to to build something uh, and get from a. Just an idea to a, to a true business, uh, and I was still a student at the business school when we start working on it, and and the rationale was quite simple. Like uh, with internet, you can change the, the menu of your of your restaurant every day, and and at that time in Europe, you could only basically order pizza or sushi, and like I was like people want to eat something else than pizza and sushi in their home, and there were no like uh, no burritos, no delivery, no I mean no grub. Grubhub or thing like this, where there was no delivery company, a not very big one. And so we started working on this. Uh, it stopped because my co-founder, like our, our goal at that time was to do a vertically integrated food delivery. So you manage the kitchen, you manage the delivery guy, you manage uh, the recipe, you, you basically integrate uh, everything. Like it's a dark kitchen plus uh, a delivery fit. Uh, it's a super operational model. And uh, and I was 22 and was basically working nights and weekends on managing kitchen porter and managing delivery driver and everything. And and my co-founder she she decided to stop because it was kind of too intense. Uh, and and it was not a hard stop. I just okay I, I cannot do it on my own. I also need more capital. And I had I heard about Rocket Internet working on the same uh, on the same business actually working on the same. Uh, 
American startup uh, and replicating into into Europe. So I said, okay, I should team up with Rocket Internet uh, and and learn with uh, with with also much more capital and, and much more efficiency. And so in one year, uh, first on my own and then with uh, Rocket Internet uh, firepower and execution, I uh, it was from an ID to uh, 150 p- people working on that ID, burning uh, a million a month. Uh, and so it was super fast-track learning on a, on a startup creation and, and, and execution. And, and it was even, even all about learning German, too, because you moved there, you were 22 to Berlin, and you didn't speak anything, and you went right away into hiring. I mean, I'm sure that, that was pretty cool for you. Yeah, I mean, that company at the very early days, I think we were three or four. And I mean, my first job was to get operation running, so get uh, kitchen staff, get driver and, and in Berlin. I didn't speak a word of German. And so I had to hire a bunch of guys, uh, manage them, uh, coach them, uh, without speaking uh, any uh, any word of their language, and they were not speaking English. So that was definitely a a very uh, interesting experience, and hopefully I had a great intern to to help me there. But I was still very pretty young, and it was I mean, a lot of responsibility and learnings and mistakes to do. And that first experience was a, a super fast track to uh, to the entrepreneurial uh, life. So in this case, I mean, you learned a few things. I mean, obviously, one was thinking long-term, and then another one was investing in people. So how did you come across those two lessons? Yeah, I think one of the... So Rocket Internet is quite famous in, in Europe. Their model was to uh, copy a U.S. model uh, outside the U.S. faster than the, the original company. Uh, so there was a king of the copycats. Their strategy was to hire uh, ex McKinsey or a Goldman guy, give them only like three to five percent ownership in the company, give them some cash, a lot of pressure, and execute. But when you're early days uh, in a company, you basically need to prove your market fit, find your 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 model, your 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 product, and so on. And it doesn't work. It works with creativity. It works with passion. It works because your life depends on it, but not your job, like your, your true life. And it works because you want to have a incredibly high upside. And if you don't create this, the good alignment of interest, if you don't create the, the great culture, it, you can have the smartest guy, you can have the, uh, a crazy amount of money. Uh, it just doesn't work. So Rocket Tenet was my first, was my first uh, work environment uh, for real. And then it was also the first time I saw like, I mean, wrong culture leads to uh, to nothing. Uh, and so having bright people is great, but having the right uh, mindset and the right culture and the right reward and the element of interest is the only way to get uh, super smart people engaged and, and successful. So culture, I mean, that was a big one here. So uh, what perhaps got you or turned you off around culture that perhaps prompted your, your departure? I, I was learning. And when you're very young, you're, you're kind of... Uh, you don't care. You learn and you know you, you 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 go after. So I didn't left necessarily because of culture. I, I spent a year there, so it was kind of short time. I left also because the business was not great, and I, and I, I saw it first time that this business was doomed to fail. So so I left, um, and and I joined. A, I, I took over another 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 company, but in that other company, and we're going to discuss it. But I also made a lot of mistake as, as a CEO around the hiring culture, treating people probably fairly and so on. And, and this is seeing all the longer term uh, impact of, of bad decision, of bad early decisions that uh, 
the last company I built with Trasluco, you want to do everything right. You want to really think super long term and align break after break, and especially people break. Once you've been unfair to someone or when you were over-promising and delivering to someone, uh, the trust you, you've lost is, is impossible to recover. So, uh, of course, when you're very young, you do all these kind of mistakes, and I think it's good. You're learning. Uh, but uh, I just learned super fast that uh, you need to be super long-term business-wise, but also with people. Like You need to choose people you want to work for the next 10 years of your life and treat them like you're going to work 10, 10 years of, of your life with them uh, and be incredibly uh, fair and, and honest and, 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 and loyal to them. And, and this is also what makes you happy on a daily basis, like work with people you're really close, work with people you really trust, uh, and, that, and this is um, both ways. So obviously here you don't see a future for yourself and you decide that uh, it's time to go. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering, like, obviously you, you were doing here food delivery and, and it was a pretty crowded market. I mean, everyone in their mother was thinking about this. So I guess from operating in a very crowded space, what did you learn? So it was the very early days of a crowded space. It was before uh, the Deliveroo, the Uber Eats, like there were no Uber Eats at the time. So it was really before the, the boom of uh, food delivery. I was probably one of the first, uh, I don't know, 15 guys uh, working on, on, on new generation food delivery in Europe. And so I've been the, the beginning of the wave. I've been really, really talented people, really great company. Uh, failing. Uh, one is called Take Tazy, like the best team, best product, everything. But they were too, like, kind of too nice and too soft on on, on fundraising. And so basically, one of the things I learned is like speed of execution and access to capital is incredibly uh, critical, especially in big, large consumer markets. Um, of course, at Rocket, I was not really a bad uh, positioning to to this, but uh, what was missing at Rocket was more the culture and and, and the I mean, just the company model was not right, but uh, I've seen Deliveroo uh, getting from nothing to, to a huge success and, and, and also uh, going down. So, I mean, speed of execution, quality of execution and access to capital, I mean, uh, that's what I learned. And I knew if, if I wanted to go, especially in consumer and like big, large B2C markets, you need to be uh, the fastest executor and very fast be perceived by uh, by VC as as a, as a number one, and if you're number two, your life is so much uh, harder, and it's really really hard to to recover from the number two position. So yeah, no, I hear you. So obviously here you made the switch, and you know the the next thing would be a little bit about avi aviation. So uh, so how do you land in in this company, OpenJet, and and tell us about this this really crazy experience? I mean that you had with the company. I, I wanted to, uh, I had some uh, also like emotional and relationship challenge uh, after going to Berlin. So I wanted to get back to to my roots, to my uh, to Paris, to where was my, my life was basically. And I, I still wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't want to take a job because I was like, okay, if you're going to take a job, then you're going to have, you're going to basically become a bourgeois. You're going to you never be willing to take risk again. And the, and the later you, you start your own company, the the hardest it's easy to accept risk and, and uh, uncertainty. So okay, you need to say entrepreneur, no way. Uh, but I was kind of too too weak as a person and emotionally to really start everything again from scratch. So I got the opportunity to uh, to cover an existing business which was uh, OpenJet, 
OpenJet was a SaaS enabled marketplace in the private jet industry. So a, a bit like OpenTable or Uber uh, for private jets in a caricatural way. And I knew nothing about private jet, but I mean, I got, I got a very good uh, offer, like with 50% of equity of the company uh, compensation. And, and, and they said, okay, you took over that company and, and there's a market, you can do this and let's go for it. And it was a bit awkward to uh, to offer me at the at like I think it was twenty four to like a company on a plate basically so it was kind of too too beautiful to be true so I also asked the guy who, who actually was running the company before before I took it over and I asked the problem and, and the problem were the co-founder were not operational were not necessarily very very trustworthy person and I was okay I don't know what to do but I, at the end I decided to do it because. It was still kind of a safe option. I don't know if it was weakness or strategy or I don't know, but I decided to do it. I've been reflecting a lot if it was a good decision or bad decision. I think it was a good one because I've learned a lot there and I've done a lot of mistakes I didn't want to to replicate and, and that led to the success of, of Luco today. Uh, but it was it was really hard to work on people on a daily basis. I could not really trust. Uh, they were not thinking long term. They were more trying to get advantage of their partner, of yourself, of everything. And I mean, it was a bit more, again, of, of uh, toxic culture I had seen first at Rocket Internet. Fast story short, I stayed there uh, 12 months. I actually developed the company quite well. It got quite successful uh, in Europe and in the US. Uh, we had really good traction. I, I had built a kind of an okay team and, and the result was there. But when the company started to be working well, the, the co-founder I didn't really trust uh, what I was expected happen, and they tried to basically take advantage of me, uh, negotiate completely uh, insane uh, shareholder agreement, insane deals, and uh, and the company like exploded. Explode. So uh, we went to court. Uh, I want just enough money to survive a year without paying me, and potentially start another company. And that was uh, the story of OpenJet. It was not very a nice uh, human story. Uh, it was yeah. an interesting one. Uh, and after this two first experience, uh, I was okay. I want to do something with someone I absolutely trust, uh, with someone I have exactly the same values, and we need to build something that has positive impact in the world. So probably those two kind of not very uh, great human story uh, has really helped me to figure out what was really important for me uh, in my daily happiness uh, beyond just having a successful business. And obviously here we're talking about partnerships and obviously partnerships that end up uh, going sour. You know, I'm sure that there is a, a lot of people that are right now listening and and that, you know, maybe they're looking at uh, partnering up with someone or finding a co-founder. I mean, what, what, what piece of advice would you share with them? I mean, all the value of your company comes from this and everyone is, has already discussed about it and, and say this, but basically it's, I mean, it's really close to, uh, for sure, to a, uh, to uh, getting uh, married and it's like you, you, you're choosing and you're a very long-term partner. Uh, I think what works very well with uh, with my co-founder is we really want to build the same thing. So we want to build something very large, but that has a, a very positive impact on the world. And it, it, it's it's truthful. It's not like plain bullshit or marketing that we really uh, want to make it. And, and if we have to try to growth or, or short-term growth with, uh, with impact, we will choose impact. And that's, we know it for sure. This is really what we want. So that's the first one. The second one is we know where we where where we're good at each other, and, and we don't try. I mean, we have very close scope. So my co-founder is our CTO 
and is dealing with a lot of, uh, I mean, our tech complexity. I'm dealing more on the uh, on the non-tech things, uh, but at the same time, I'm an engineer. We understand what what I'm doing, so we have clear scope. We challenge each other, but we never try to to take the role of the other, and that's that's super important. And then the last thing is Ben, my co-founder, is is fundamentally a very very good person. Uh, and someone I really admire, uh, and, and working with, with him is like, I don't know if he's a model, but definitely some, someone, even if he's younger than me, someone I, I immensely respect and, and, and praise. And so, uh, that's also help you on a daily basis to, uh, to be a better person. So that's, that's fantastic. I'm sure that uh, people are taking notes. And in your case, I mean, with Luco, you know, which was uh, your next day uh, rodeo, and obviously your, your latest, your latest baby, no? Uh, you guys, like the early days, it was like kind of like a small family business. So what were, those, what were those early days like and what ended up being the business model that we know of Luco today? Yeah, so we, we really start Luco as a, as a true bootstrap company. Uh, even if I have been working at a well-funded tech startup at the early days uh, before Luco, when, I, when, when we started Luco, we... We had kind of uh, no money. I, I, I haven't made any uh, money out of my 2F experience. My, my co-founder was right uh, out of university. And so we had a vision to build something about, about homes, about uh, data in homes and so on. And one of our, our needs was to build sensors to get that data. Uh, and so my co-founder started to do electronics, design the sensor. But we actually needed to produce them, and the, the best way to produce them at cost we could afford was actually to uh, to manufacture the device on our own. And so we had a microfounder, me, uh, and, and our families, like little brother at 12 years old or 14 years old, actually producing those devices. Uh, and actually, one of th- those guys got some small shares at Luco, and we was of course unofficial and was okay. We give you a this amount of shares for, for helping us. And now, I mean, uh, that's super happy with the shares I got at that time. Uh, but that's, uh, it was yeah, definitely a, a true uh, family business at the very early date. So then how did the business evolve? Because obviously here, I mean, one of the things that you already got from, from your experience with good food, with rocket internet was building the team, you know, really investing in culture. So, so what would you say, you know, like has been, you know, the, the, the mindset or, or the culture of Luco, how have you guys embraced that over the course of time? We restarted Luco for, for helping people at home to be a greener, safer, and, and invent a, 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 fair, a fair model around insurance with something we call the give back. And, and, and in all people who join us at the very early days, I mean, we were no one, uh, we are not raised from big name VC. And so we were like only people joining us because they were kind of dreamer and crazy guys like us believing we could like reinvent or, or change a, a billion dollar industry and also have a positive impact. So that was really at the core of, of it. And people were joining it because of that dream and potentially some, some equity they could get uh, into what maybe one day will be something that uh, works. Um, and that's like having a lot of people with the same intention, with the same passion, with the same goals. Is actually incredibly uh, powerful. So I think having little money uh, at the beginning really helped us to attract the right people uh, and also, I mean, yeah, share share the same direction and 
And that's that's really what has contributed to the success of Luco in the first 18 months. It was not really about us. It was not really about building a cool insurance company that uh, make a lot of premium. It was really about uh, getting a kind of a dream uh, on set to a potential reality. And in and in Luco, how much how much capital have you guys raised today? So up uh, today, I think we raised about 74 millions. And but the first like big round with a big uh, big VC only came uh, 18 months ago. And so for three years, we were really uh, hustlers trying to 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 prove something. And then two years ago, we get Axel, and, 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 and like 18 months ago, we got Axel, and, and things are changing, and we we've been more perceived as a hot trendy startup uh but th- that that's definitely not uh, our identity and, and who we, we we've been uh, we've been for for months so obviously given your past experience you know with with partnerships and that we've we've touched on that you know i'm sure that you were also very careful as to who you were going to allow to invest and to be part of this journey you know more on the investment side obviously uh but but what were you really looking for on those investors that you onboarded because I think that you've gotten like, uh, obviously, the who is who. I mean, you got people like Axel uh, and even individuals, you know, like uh, Asaf, you know, from Hippo, which uh, is a great guy. He's been on the show, too. And even Founders Fund. So so what were you looking, you know, in, in those guys that ended up investing? Yeah, at early days, I think we were looking for, I mean, you always look for super funder-friendly uh, investors. Uh, at early days, you... We had a lot of guys from the insurance industry, and our only uh, red line was like, okay, maybe they come from the insurance industry, but they basically let's execute in the way we want. They let us change, like they don't, I mean, they just allow us uh, to execute how much we want and how many freedom. So at the early days, some companies take big names or, or famous guys that's maybe gonna bring more credibility to, to their thing. We, we did not add this. And we also make sure that maybe it was not big names, but uh, those uh, early angels were not toxic. And so basically, they had very little say on what we were doing. And it was honestly a lot of just pure money. And then when we were, uh, so it was already being picky to make sure it was only money and and, and not expecting much more. Uh, and then when we started to be able to be really picky, because in the early days of Luco, we, like, <laughs> we were not very picky. Uh, we just make sure we had the right capital, the right uh, terms, and we, we like didn't want to add any legacy in the future. But that was it. Uh, and then when we we could choose, we were definitely looking for people who who had great, uh, super great reputation amongst founders, and then we understand uh, our industry and what we were trying to build. So in this case, uh, for you guys. Rafael, I mean, obviously, it's a it's a ginormous space. Uh, the market is 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 tremendous. So, I'm wondering, like, if if you were to wake up in a world where the vision is fully realized of Luco, what does that world look like? Yeah, the, the very big vision is when you have a home, you have a lot to deal with, uh, and and generally those things are not very exciting. Uh, so you need to deal with your your contract, you need to deal with your energy, you need to deal with your with your maintenance. When you have an issue, you need to find a solution. And today, this world is very, very uh, complex. Uh, it's definitely not uh, holistic or seamless. So you have a different provider for everything. You have a lot of contracts. And it's, I mean, it's just very, 
very bad. And also, like your home is, is not necessarily very efficient in terms of energy and so on. But you never know what, who to trust. You always get you're always scared to get uh, scammed by a repairman or by even by a contract provider. So the world we, we, we're building and the service around homes we're building uh, is just a very seamless experience to run your home, fix problem, prevent problem, and have a, a greener greener home. So in a very caricature way, it's like kind of, now when you when you do retail, you more or less go on Amazon and, and have, you know you're going to receive things on time and it works and it's a good price. We want more or less the same kind of experience for your home. Uh, but definitely with a sustainable uh, aspect that's that's not really the case when you when you buy online a lot of the time now. Absolutely, you know, and 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 just so the people get a good sense of the of the size of Luco today, like how how big is the company? I mean, anything that you can share around maybe number of employees or anything else? Yeah, so we we're ninety uh, in the team today. Uh, we got a hundred thousands uh, home insured. We're only in France, uh, looking to expand to uh, new countries this year. So we are actively working on it. What is visible uh, from Luco today is our home insurance uh, offering in France, but we are also working a lot on a lot of technology to prevent accidents, to make home uh, uh, more 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 energy efficient. And and those like 20, 25 persons that have been working with us for the last two years, uh, I cannot uh, wait to actually get this product live and I really show like uh, the full picture and what we're really building that is not only an insurance contract, but that's uh, the behind the scenes story that is also super interesting. And the question that I always ask the guest, so imagine if you were to get in a time machine and you're able to go back in time and maybe you're able to have a chat with that younger Raphael that is a you know, thinking about like what's a, what's going to be that first business, even before Good Food, your very first company. If you had the opportunity to chat with that younger Raphael and give that younger Raphael one piece of advice before starting a company, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now? <laughs> so I'm a very assertive person. So I'm generally very optimistic. I'm a, I'm, I'm take a, I have very few uh, re, uh, regrets or things like this. So I just think things, uh, I mean, I wouldn't change much. I would just say, okay, stay as hungry. Uh, be as exciting following what you were, what you're passionate about. Uh, leave it uh, 200%. Trust people. Uh, invest in in people. Be very uh, uh, yourself with everyone. And so I wouldn't change much, honestly. What, what works so far is like yeah, putting so much energy in what you're doing. You really have no compromise and 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 going full speed. So I think I, of course I have a lot of technical stuff and and and, and hard skills, but uh this this uh does not last a, a long a long time so no doing the same thing absolutely so rafael for the people that are listening what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi my, my email is rafael at luco.eu and uh, i'm as not a spanish person uh rafael is, is with ph not with f <laughs> okay that goes for people like me all righty well rafael <laughs> thank you so so much for being on the deal maker show today gracias alejandro if you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.